This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of New Books Network. This is your host, Morteza Hajizadeh, and today I'm honored to be speaking to Dr. Gimet Cruzet. Dr. Gimet Cruzet has written a wonderful book about the Middle East. The book is called Inventing the Middle East, Britain and the Persian Gulf in the Age of Global Imperialism, which was published by McKill University Press in 2022. Uh, Dr. Gimet Cruzet, welcome to New Books Network. Well, thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you. Uh, before we start the interview, can you start, please, introducing yourself? Tell us what attracted you to history and, uh, more importantly, why you became interested in uh, in the history of uh, the area that, you, you, that you've written about, the Middle East and also, I guess, Indian, uh, the Middle East area in general. Yeah, so I guess um, I said, by say, I'm a historian of uh, of European and particularly um, British representations and engagements with the Middle East. And uh, what my book is about is really uh, the ideas and imaginaries of the Middle East and, and the invention of the concept of the Middle East. But what I've tried to do in the book is trace this invention not to the 20th century, so, and this is usually, you know, the account that we have, the Middle East was invented in the 20th century in the aftermath of the First World War, when the mandates were created uh, on the, you know, on the, on, on the ruins of the Ottoman Empire. But what I argue in the book is that the Middle East is a creation of the British Empire in India during the long 19th century. And the book really tries to analyze the the different visions and representation of the Middle East, um, how different actors based in India, based in the Persian Gulf, based in other parts of the Middle East, based in London, um, how they contributed to the invention of this concept. So the book is about these competing visions, how sometimes they rejoined and how sometimes they they clashed. I say that, um, you know, more, more largely I'm interested in the in the entangled histories of globalization, imperialism, and terraqueous environments in the Middle East and the Indian Ocean world, with a focus on the Persian Gulf and uh, and the Red Sea. And to tell you a bit how how did this book um, come about? Like, what was the idea? I think that you know anyone who carefully tries to to look at the term of the Middle East find that it's quite. Uh, hazy concept, right? What is the Middle East? Where it is? Which countries are part of the Middle East? Even if we hear the term all the time, when we listen to the radio, you know, we watch TV or or we we read the newspaper, it's everywhere. But what are we really talking about? And um, what I found really fascinating when I was doing my research is um, to to see that around 1900, the term Middle East appears. It starts to be used by journalists, by politicians, by by diplomats to describe um, actually not not the Middle East as we we conceive it today, but a sort of a vast area 
centered around the Persian Gulf and which is conceived as the borderland of the British Empire in India. And um, the, the Middle East then is a sort of label invented to describe a critical geopolitical space on the world map and a kind of nexus of different grids of, of power. It's also a, a crucible through which um, there run a series of routes connecting London to British India. So the, the term is coined to, 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 to describe retrospectively a century of British imperialism in the area and the, the impact of this imper the imperialism on, on the region around the, the, the Persian Gulf. Um, so I, I got interested in these you know, narratives, in these describing British imperialism in the Gulf and in the Middle East in the 19th century, and I wanted to write you know, the, the story which is connected to the invention of the term, so to the retrospective story uh, behind the concept of the Middle East. And uh, in the end, that got me to study um, the British imperialism in the Persian Gulf first and how the Middle East is invented around the Persian Gulf as, as, a, as the center of the Middle East in the 19th century. Uh, I, I completely agree with you when you said that uh, Middle East is a confusing um, category because I before the interview, I guess I told you that I'm originally from Iran myself. And when about 11 years ago, 12 years ago, I left Iran and went to New Zealand to study when when people, I thought before leaving Iran, I thought I was Asian because Iran is in Asia. But then after moving out, I realized that now Asia is a different category. And apparently Iran doesn't belong to that, and it's in the Middle East. But again, when you talk to people more and you tell them that the Middle East, there are countries actually were, which are in Africa, like Egypt or Libya, and they're also considered part of the Middle East. They are they're further confused. And uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, I think it's really fascinating. But you know what you're talking about and what I'm talking about in the end are very Eurocentric concepts. A geographical concept inv invented by imperial powers from the early modern uh, era, India or the South Indian, uh, in the the South South Asia or the Indian subcontinent and and the Middle East. So it's it's creating geopolitical la labels that then are applied to different parts of the world, and that somehow kind of um, uh, hides. Uh, you know, the connection some areas can have with other spaces. And what I show in the book is that uh, in the end, the Middle East is a maritime space. The Middle East we're talking about the 19th century is not the Middle East of the 20th century, which is centered around uh, the mandates of Syria, Palestine, uh, around the oil, oil wells. Uh, it's a different Middle East that is completely connected to the dynamics and the flows of the Indian Ocean world. And you're right, you know, what about Egypt? Is Egypt in Africa or is Egypt in the Middle mm -hmm. East? So it depends also what definition we take. And I guess what I study is in the book is one definition of the Middle East, the British Middle East of the 19th century, which is different, as I said, from the British uh, Middle East of the 20th century. My Middle East, if I can talk like that, is, as I say, connected to the dynamics of the Indian Ocean world, but also to the dynamics of uh, you know, the, the semi-independent British Empire in India that had sort of risen to independence of, of power since the, the 18th century. This is what I find fascinating is um, I, I don't claim to have deconstructed Europe, European or Eurocentric concept, but I've tried to contribute to the, to the understanding of their invention and the reason behind these inventions, I'd say.
Mm-hmm. And uh, the term Middle East was actually, as you said, uh, originated by the British, but then it became more popular with, I forgot the name of the American admiral, I guess, who popularized that through an article that he wrote. But can you tell us, you will talk about this as we go ahead, but can you tell us maybe about when when first the British became interested in this region and the Arabian Peninsula. And you also talk about another actor, the French. Uh, they were also involved, but there seemed to be this rivalry between these two. Can you talk about when the, uh, the British became more interested in this region? It's a great question. You know, my my book, as I said, is focused on the 19th century, but we, we can trace back um, the, the beginning of British interest for, for the region of the Persian Gulf, the Arabian Peninsula, actually to the 17th century with the, the beginning of the um the the adventures uh, or the ventures of uh, of the English East India Company uh so the trading uh, the chartered trading company created by uh, Elizabeth the first uh that first opened factories uh in the Indian Indian subcontinent along the coast of the Indian uh, subcontinent, but then also uh, creates a couple of trading outposts uh, in the Persian Gulf with the aim of getting a share uh, of the trade of the region. So uh, the the English are very much interested, for example, in trading with Persia, getting a share of the of the silk trade. Uh, they're also interested in the Arabian Peninsula, uh, in uh, in what is uh, today's Yemen, to get a share of the coffee trade. So uh, the the lure for these commodities in Europe uh, actually led the British to to be interested in this region first for I say commercial and trading purposes, and to start um, entering into diplomatic relations with local powers. So the Shahs of Persia, so the the Safavid with with Shah Abbas for the silk trade, for example, uh, the Ottomans, and then the the the, the independent sultans of uh, of Yemen for the coffee trade. And in some ways, it's the same story for the French. Uh, I said 1798 in my book and Napoleon's expedition uh, in Egypt for the beginning of French endeavors uh, in, in the region. But like the, the British, we can trace back an interest of the French for the region to the 17th and 18th century. Um, the French are very much interested um, in the coffee trade as well. So they they start uh, also opening uh, diplomatic um, uh, relation with uh, the powers of the Arabian Peninsula. They also start being very much interested in having trading and political outposts in the Western Indian Ocean world. And as I said, uh, in the Gulf and the Arabian Peninsula are very much connected to the dynamics of the Western Indian Ocean world. However, what my book shows is that from this commercial presence that was accompanied by uh, diplomatic relations, the signatures of commercial treaty, we have a change in the late 18th, early 19th century. And uh, this this change unfolds because um, the nature of power uh, in British India has changed. Uh, the East India Company has become more and more of a political power. And this will clash with the arrival of um, the, the French also as political actors in Egypt. So in 1798, when Napoleon arrives in Egypt, he has a sort of a clear plan. Not only does easy um, easy coming to Egypt to spread the, the ideas and the ideals of the French Revolution, by, in a paradox, uh, you know, violently occupying and looting the the, the country, uh, but he's also, um, you know, coming to Egypt to uh, 
sort of disturb, destabilize British positions uh, in uh, in the region, uh, so in the whole Levant or in the whole East, depending how we want to call it, with the um, the ultimate aim in the end to destabilize British power in India from Egypt. So um, that makes for a clash between the French and the British because the French, the British then are very much worried that indeed the French are going to disturb their very secure position, what they see as a secure position in India and um, also are going to sort sort of uh, destroy the, the fragile balance of the Ottoman Empire um, which is considered as the first buffer zone uh, of British India. So from the moment the French have somehow succeeded in Egypt, the Ottoman Empire looks really weak and then India looks weak. Uh, and that's the how, how my story begins about the invention of the Middle East as a buffer zone for British India. And uh, apart from the rivalry maybe between the British and the French, what sort of, what was the relationship between the countries of the region, countries like Persia or the, the Sultanates or Arab countries or tribes, some of them were not really established as countries back then. Was there a rivalry between them as well? It's a great, it's a great question. And and really the first thing to say is when the French arrive in Egypt, and also um when the British get more and more involved in the in the Persian Gulf uh, region, uh, they do get involved in a very complex geopolitical landscape. And um the other thing to say is that the Gulf in the late 18th century was awash with political upheavals. The Ottoman Empire had, um, if I if I can speak like that, sort of retreated from the Gulf, which it had partly conquered in the 16th and 17th century. And Persia had as well had very much retreated since the mid-18th century from, from the, the waters of the of the Gulf. And this had paved the way to um, to the, the the to the political entities uh, arrayed along the Arabian shores of the Gulf to become independent. Um, one thing to bear in mind also is that the, uh, in the Arabian Peninsula, the Wahhabis had also risen to power, conquered significant uh, portions of the Arabian Peninsula. They were exerting some pressure on the coast of the Persian Gulf. And so you have all these political actors um, that, um, especially for, for the political entities um, along the, the Arabian shores of the Gulf, which have become the United Arab Emirates and, and uh, the, the states of Kuwait and Qatar, they live by the sea, but also on the sea with communities of merchants taking, taking an active part in the intra-Asian trade. They were trading with the Indian Ocean world, Indian subcontinent. And all these powers are competing for resources, they're competing for trade, um, and for the, the domination of the sea. In terms, again, of um, who, who dominates the, re the Persian Gulf region uh, in, uh, in the late 18th century, it's the Kazimi of Ras al-Kaima, which I guess we'll, we'll talk about uh, a, a little bit about later. So the Emirate of Ras al-Kaima still exists today. It was a city. Uh, guarding the the on on the shores of on the shores of the Arabian uh on the Arabian side uh, of the Gulf, um which was guarding the Strait of of Hormuz and Ras al Khaimah formed a sort of maritime confederacy. So Ras al Khaimah had um allies, small political entities again on the Persian side of the Gulf and um. 
they were competing for the domination of the Gulf with the Sultan of Oman. Um, and that leads all this power to somehow clash, compete, uh, be at war on the seas in the late 18th century. The British talk about feuds uh, between them. Um, so, so that's for the, the, the political landscape. What I what I, I should add is that we have uh, very few, if not non, no local sources to describe it. So this vision is very much influenced by what the British tell us about the, the political landscape in the late 18th century. And that's interesting that uh, there's no other source except for what's written, uh, what the archival evidence that is found by the British. And you mentioned this tribe, um, uh, Rasal Kaima, or I don't know how they pronounce it in Arabic anyhow. And you also talk about a, a, a military conflict there. First of all, let's talk about the piracy in the region. Uh, what was piracy in the region like? And and, and and what was that famous attack on Rasal Kaima in 1809? I think that the first thing to say, uh, and I discuss it at length in the book, is that um, we only have British sources on the idea of piracy stemming from the port cities on the shores of the Gulf. Um, so having the, the, the power to define regional norms, including the, the, the power to, to label particular people as pirates and to intervene against them, or indeed to have uh, implement a notion such as freedom of the seas was itself an important part of the British imperial agenda. This is what I show uh, in the book. And uh, what is interesting is that Napoleon, who arrives in Egypt, as I said, in 1798, is very much seen also uh, and portrayed by the British as a kind of geopolitical pirate um, and one who might uh, you know, use the, the pirates of the Gulf to further French interest in the region. Um, so everyone for the British is a bit of, of a pirate. What I uh, I think is important is that we don't know enough about the history of piracy in the region to make a lot of hypotheses. Part of the picture, though, would seem to be that the region's population was booming. As I said, a lot of geopolitical changes had happened in the 18th century with also Wahhabi pressure in the Arabian Peninsula. And um, some uh, coastal communities had expanded um, and they were competing for resources. So um, maybe piracy uh, was a way to compete uh, for, for the resources. And what the British saw as piracy was just rivalry for, for the resources of the region or for uh, the domination of, of the Gulf. Um, and as the East India Company gradually got more and more involved in the region, its, its ship got attacked, um, according to, to British sources, by pirates from the Gulf region. Why maybe an hypothesis is because the, the ships of the East India Company were just seen as another actor coming to the Gulf to compete for resources. Um, so piracy is just maybe a, la a label invented by the British to describe this situation of instability of competition uh, in the Gulf. But what is interesting uh, is that uh, so her whole discourse about piracy in the Gulf and the Gulf uh, population being pirates is constructed by the British, especially by actors um, 
based in, in British India from the mid 18th century, with obviously an acceleration by the end of the, uh, the 18th century. And that leads the British to attack Ras el Khaimah, so the city guarding the Strait of Hormuz in mm. 1809. Uh, so as I say, the reason behind this attack, the the reasons put forward by, by the British is that uh, mm. uh, the Gulf needs to be pacified. The, the Gulf needs to be um, sort of... Um, uh, or, or, that, that the pirates shouldn't rule anymore the, the 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 seas of the waters of the Gulf because the piracy is an obstacle to the freedom of the sea. Uh, it's an obstacle to trade. Uh, it causes uh, heavy losses for the ships of the East India Company. Um, and so, in eighteen oh nine, a huge expedition leaves Bombay to technically destroy the city of Ras el Khaimah to get rid of the pirates of the Gulf. And it's an incredibly violent episode in the history of, of, of the British presence uh, in the Gulf. Uh, so the city is bombed for the sea. Then there is uh, a, troops are disembarked. They um, enter Ras el Khaimah. They loot uh, the city. They burn the ships of the, of the Kazimi of Ras el Khaimah. Um, uh, the walls of Ras el Khaimah are destroyed. Uh, the palm date plantations are burnt. A part of the city is burnt. Um, what is interesting is that we 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 have representation through a series of engraving of this intervention by British artists that shows the complete destruction. So what the the, the British want to achieve is really to annihilate Russell Kaima from the geopolitical map of the Gulf, and that marks the beginning truly of the British political intervention in the Gulf. Because then, once the city is destroyed, there needs to be a future so if i can if i can talk like that for the relations between the british and local powers in the gulf what is next what should be next is peace at seas and diplomatic relation between the kazimis and the british however it doesn't really um happen that easily and this is what i show in the book uh that's quite interesting i did not know about that 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 attack on russell kaima and the reasons behind that and uh, another actor that you talk about in the book is is the French and Napoleon Bonaparte. He also had his allies in the region. He had his connections in the region. Was he the real reason that the British decided to intervene in this region? And I'm quite interested in this topic. And the reason is that the British Empire had a vast air geographical area to cover and govern, which was not easy. And I read a book some time ago called the uh, I think it's called it was called the Empire of Influence, which was about these these networks that the British Empire had established in the region to maintain its power. And you also talk about a, a, a kind of a form of an imperialism that was formed there by the British to govern the, the region because they had their they had India, but they also had to protect their interests in this region. And it was either through military presence or was it through military presence presence or form or, or a kind of a semi-formal imperialism? So these are the topics that I'm really interested in to know more about. Yeah, I mean, gr great questions. Um, what I argue in the book is that, um, you know, it was part of um, the, the mission set by uh, the French powers uh, uh, to Napoleon to actually, as, as I said at, at the beginning, you know, when we were talking, to disturb or to 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 weaken 
uh, British positions in India from Egypt. It was Napoleon's mission. And he tries to do it um, not only uh, by uh, potentially um, uh, organizing an expedition that would uh, invade uh, India, or at least that's what the British want us to, to, to believe, but also uh, because uh, Napoleon starts creating um, or making contacts with uh, local powers uh, in, the in the region. So, um, for example, he starts entering into a diplomatic relation with the Sultan of Oman, uh, with the Shah of Persia as well. So he really tries to create a network of, of alliances that would potentially support uh, his endeavors against the British and potentially an expedition against British India. What is also really interesting um, and maybe more, more, more famous is that Napoleon tried to uh, create an alliance with Tipu Said, so the Sultan of Mysore, uh, who was uh, known at the time as being uh, a Britain's greatest enemy uh, and uh, greatest opponent to British expansion in the Indian subcontinent. Um, they, not not just me. Uh, historians have showed that uh, there was some enthusiasm in Mysore for the for the for the French Revolution, for its ideals, and for and for Napoleon, who supposedly would have been able uh, to help uh, Tipu Said get rid of uh, what Napoleon instead called uh, England's iron yoke. Right. Uh, so that that's that's for 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 Napoleon. In the end. Um, what what I argue in the book is that it doesn't matter whether Napoleon truly wanted to invade India or not. Uh, the the great fear of a project, a French project to invade British India, is a trigger. And for me, it, in ultimately, it's a success because it triggers uh, a wave of British imperialism in the Gulf. From the moment India is seen at risk. Uh, and that there's a fear of a British uh, invention, the will to create a vast buffer zone to protect British India, a buffer zone center of the Gulf starts. So uh, in the end, the Ras al Khaimah expedition happens at a juncture, which is really interesting. It's not so much about piracy. It's maybe not so much about Napoleon. It's about protecting British India. And it's, a, it's, it's just also the continuation of the story of um, British, the East India Company rising in the Indian subcontinent as an independent power, as having its own colony, its its own domains, uh, which were controlled from from the the, the subcontinent. So the the juncture around the late eighteenth, early nineteenth century is very interesting. There is not one single reason for the British to 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 intervene in the Gulf. There is more a sort of like a conjuncture. But um, what I I analyze in the book is uh, once uh, the the 1809 expedition against Ras al Khaimah is over, the problem for the British as they've started to get involved in the Gulf region is to uh, to find a way to manage this space, but at low cost and without getting too heavily involved. In, uh, in local affairs. The British do not want to get too involved in this complex geopolitical um, terrain, uh, which I, uh, I have described. And um, in, the, in the end, um, they, 
during the first half of the 19th century, they go through a series of ex experimentation as to how to govern the Gulf. Is it through a heavy military presence? Is it through just having one military base? Is it through uh, you know having the the the, the resident um, as uh, the key figure? For the political system created, and um, obviously the inspiration is the for the um, the informal imperialism uh, and the system of indirect rule, which had been invented in India. But however, ultimately the British invent a system of imperialism which is specific to the Gulf and which I describe in the book. And who was the? You also talk about this character, uh, Captain George Sadler, if I'm pronouncing them correctly. Who was he and what was his role in defining British strategy in the region? Uh, it's a great question and I'm glad Sadler caught your uh, your attention. Um, the, I think the first thing to say is that Sadler's uh, expedition, uh, which uh, I, 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 I analyze in the book, takes place so um, in 1819. So in this context that I was describing where, where the British wonder, how to govern the Gulf. And there's a debate in bon Bombay, there's a debate in India, there's a debate in the Gulf itself for the British to find, if I can, you know, the, the right type of, of, of rule for, for, for the Gulf. Um, the British face the problem that uh, despite all the, the violence against uh, Ras al-Khaimah in 1809, uh, that piracy is still is still there in the Gulf. So they need to find a way also to get rid of, of piracy. And uh, Sadler is sent uh, to meet uh, Ibrahim Pasha. Uh, so Ibrahim Pasha was the son of uh, Muhammad Ali, also called Mehmet Ali, so the governor of Egypt, who had come to power in the aftermath of Napoleon's expedition. And uh, Mehmet Ali and Yassam Ibrahim Pasha were uh, two great military uh, strategists and reformers um, who, on behalf of the Ottomans, were leading in the first decades of uh, the, the 19th century um, military campaigns against the Wahhabi in order to reassert Ottoman authority in the Arabian Peninsula. And so... Captain George Sadler, who had participated in the first expedition arrest against Ras al Khaimah in 1809, is sent to meet uh, so the, the Pashas of, Egy of Egypt um, to see whether uh, they would be interested uh, in um, being associated with, with the British to another expedition to the Gulf to get rid of the pirates, whether they would be interested in being associated to the governance of the Gulf. Sadler also has the mission to try to understand what are what are really um, the, uh, Ibrahim and, and Mehmet Ali's, um, let's say, projects for the Arabian Peninsula. Are they just going to lead this mission, which was clearly set by the Ottomans to fight the Wahhabis? Or are they interested also in expanding Egyptian power to the Gulf? So Sadler's mission is, is a big mission. But I think what it shows is that the British are really not certain, not only about how to govern the Gulf, but how, as I say, to, to insert themselves in this complex geopolitical landscape, which has already changed in 1798. And 
ultimately Sadler's mission is a failure because the governor of Bombay takes all the decisions for the future of British presence in the Gulf while Sadler is traveling in the Arabian Peninsula uh, to meet Ibrahim Pasha. But um, I, uh, what I show in the book is this, it's just it's really interesting to try to to, to understand that the British at the beginning of the 19th century did not have a clear idea about the future of the nature of British imperialism in the Gulf. They do not apply, you know, a preconceived theory. It's gradually invented with some failures, with explosions of violence, with humiliations for the British themselves, with, um, you know, like Sadler, you know, diplomatic missions to talk to local actors. And that that is what I found really interesting. Uh, another part of the book that I was really interested in, and that's something that I don't really see very often in uh, books of history, which is about the role of uh, geography, topographer, surveyors in creation, these borders, let's say, these, these uh, fabricated borders. And also the knowledge of the local population in those areas. And that's something discussed in the book, how the borderline of the British India was established in the region Gulf. And you also discussed the role of these surveyors and topographers from, from England, and also the reliance on local population. So can you talk about this uh, theme in your book, please? Yeah, I'm glad you you enjoyed the chapter Um because I I also did a BA in geography, so I I I have a strong interest in I say all things geographical. Now I see why um, you've included this chapter. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, the the thing is, um, in the early nineteenth century, for the, for for the British, um, in terms of geographical representations or cartography, the Gulf was a little bit of a terra incognita. Um. So, for example, during the 1809 expedition and even before, the British rely on maps that were uh, done by the Dutch, for example, and even the Portuguese or the French in the 18th century. So there was a sort of, um, you know, delay of, of, of the British in, in getting their hands on, on the Gulf and creating a vast uh, array of representations. Um, what I argue in the book, and there I follow a, a long historiography, uh, you know, both historians, historians of cartography and geographers, is that geographical representations do not describe reality. Um, on the opposite, they're just projections, they're just representations. So the, the British um, actually conduct um, what identifies as three big waves of surveys in the Gulf, sending ships uh, with topographers, uh, with soldiers to map the, the Gulf region. This starts with the lower Gulf, so actually the region around the Strait of Hormuz and Ras al-Khaimah and the Sultanate of Oman, and then gradually they map the Gulf region, and uh, in the late 19th century, they map also what I call the upper Gulf, so more the region about, around Kuwait, Qatar, and the Shat el-Arab uh, El -Arab Delta. So these surveyors are on ships. They actually struggle a lot at the beginning because they don't have the right tools to, to take measurements, for, for example. And indeed, they do rely on local population, uh, especially when it comes to mapping the, the Shatel Arab Delta. Um, uh, and they 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 rely generally on, on local population just to name the place. So what is really interesting in in these early maps of the Gulf is that you find a, a British um, 
taxonomy on, on on the maps you know we'll talk about elphinstone inlets about uh you know the 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 strait of Hormuz, and then you'll find um terms derived from arabic and from persian just to name the the different places and um what i also found really fascinating in in all these maps uh and and charts and 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 plans and and, and views that are produced by the surveyors by the topographer is that they all contribute to create an array of representations of the gulf you know of the gulf is like a crucible of empires so for example on maps of Hormuz, you will find traces of the portuguese presence on the island and that's um really important then for uh, the 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 invention of the concept of the Middle East, and I guess we'll talk about this later, but the Middle East as a cradle of empires. So empires from the antiquity to more recent empires, and then the British coming as the last empire, uh, but the empire that will last and that will not fall. And this is what the chapter analyzes in the end. And uh, let's talk about trade in that area. Uh, when I was a kid, uh, there were some movies made uh, in Iran, which were made in it, it was about the people in southern parts of Iran. And I remember as a kid, one of the trades uh, there was for divers to dive in. And they were amateur people. They had no equipment, no oxygen capsule or anything. They would dive into the Persian Gulf to 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 find pearls. Uh, and also, of course, date is also a common is, is a staple in 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 southern parts of Iran, which again is near the Persian Gulf. And you talk about the these two products, pearl and dates, and the role of these products in expanding the global economic uh, uh, role of the the role of Gulf in the global economic systems. And another part of that book that was the your book that I was really interested in was the role of the the trade of these products on slave trade as well. So could you please talk about these ideas as well? Yes, um, sure. Um, this is um, a, a part of the book that I really enjoy uh, uh, writing. Um, and as, as you say, so pearls and dates were products, commodities of the Gulf region that had been traded since uh, the antiquity. So um, vast bomb date uh, plantations, uh, you know, probably have been present in the Gulf region since the antiquity. And it's the same for uh, Pearl Banks. So as you said, um, uh, because of certain of the geographical conditions of the Gulf region, there were banks of uh, natural natural pearls. We're talking about natural pearl, not cultural pearl that were invented in the 20th century in, in Japan. And uh, archaeologists have shown, for example, that uh, already during the, the antiquity, um, pearls were fished around the island of Bahrain and exported to, to various parts of the Indian Ocean world. Um, however, uh, in the 19th century, both the pearl, both pearls and dates really enjoyed a boom for, for different reasons, which I discuss in the book. Uh, pearls and dates became in increasingly popular in Europe. And um, uh, during the whole 19th century, with an acceleration from the late 1850s, uh, there is really, a, let's say, a trend for eating dates, uh, for uh, using them in various recipes, in cooking, Pearls are super fashionable. You know, the whole bourgeoisie in Europe wants pearls, and these pearls come from, from the Gulf. 
Um, what I analyze in, in the book is that the British developed a political economy around uh, the dates and the pearls. Um, for, for the British, these two commodities in a way uh, were, uh, let's say, the channel through which um, the, the Gulf could be transformed uh, from a nest of pirates to a peaceful uh, British lake of uh, of people, you know, trading uh, com commodities. So the whole political system that the British invent uh, uh, in the Gulf is geared around the trade of these two commodities and uh, especially the pearl, the pearl, the pearl fishing. Um, so I think the thing to say is that definitely through these two commodities, the Gulf was integrated to the global economy of the 19th century, to the expanding global economy. But um, what I show in the book is that we shouldn't view, I, I, I try, let's say, to complexify a little bit the analysis. And what I show is that British imperialism probably benefited from this, um, you know, the, to, to the they benefited from the fact that these two commodities were a la mode, if I can talk like that, were so popular in Europe, but that in some ways the system, the political system created by the British in the Gulf also set or helped create the conditions for the globalization of these two, uh, these two commodities. So there, um, you know, globalization the expanding global economy and British imperialism are completely interconnected phenomena in the Gulf. And the impact on the slave trade, it's its a fascinating question. Um, as I as I describe in the book, uh, and for it had been the case for centuries, much of the labor for the dates and the pearl industries came from slavery. Uh, fostering uh, a heightened trade in slave, um, which would itself become another element of this economic picture and of this political economy, which I've just described. So you had slaves from the region of East, Af from the from regions of East Africa, who were traded into the Gulf region via Zanzibar and the vast slave network of the Western Indian Ocean. And these slaves would come work in the date plantations and in the pearl fisheries with a high, you know, uh, mortality rate, um, et cetera, and et cetera, and um, really difficult, working in very difficult conditions. Um, and in, 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 in a sense, and this is what I argue in the book, the political economy of this British informal empire in the Gulf was ultimately based on the slave laboring in date plantations and working in the pearl fishing operation. And um, I, I analyze in, in the books the, some of the attempts of the British to uh, to reduce, to, to fight the slave trade um, and I analyze the paradox, however, uh, that, um, you know, the, the authorities in British India, um, the, their attempts to curb the slave trade in the region would ultimately remain limited. And there you have a clash between, uh, you know, London and, 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 and the role that had been defined for Britain as a champion uh, fighting the slave trade and fighting slavery and what the British are actually doing in the Western Indian Ocean. Because slavery, ultimately, and the slave trade are extremely important 
to this political economy and the system of an informal empire, which was organized around the trade in these two commodities, the pearls and the day, that needed um, a huge slave population to function. Mm-hmm. And uh, how about archaeology? The the discovery of Mesopotamia was an important, was a turning event in the region. So what was the impact of this archaeological discovery of, of, of Mesopotamia and the British imperialism? I guess it kind of revived an, the idea of an ancient empire uh, and it sort of echoed with the British. So can you talk about that, please? Yeah. So um, archaeological, British archaeological campaigns um, in what they call Mesopotamia, so what is today uh, Iraq, start uh, in, the, uh, in the 1840s. Uh, so obviously you've got really important figure uh, like Layard. Um, in my book, I, I connect uh, you know these archaeological discoveries to uh, the the representations of, of the Middle East and and to the very idea of the Middle East and how the Middle East was marketed and imagined by the public in Imperial Britain. I think is a fascinating topic, and this marketing came through archaeological dif- discoveries and notably Layard's adventure, who you know, became a sort of like superstar in Britain in the mid 19th century after he had discovered Nineveh and other, um, you know, uh, sites of uh, of the ancient empires uh, that had governed the the region. Um, Part of the distinctive fascination of this region um, was uh, indeed tied up with a sense of being uh, what I call a timeless land. So uh, a, a timeless land which was full of of material traces of uh, of the glorious ancient empires, and uh, what is revealed through archaeology and to the archaeological discoveries uh, is that uh, in 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 some ways um, the, the the Middle East then becomes a terrain of ancient empires that could be revised. It it could be revived. It is um, basically uh, the land of the Bible as well, and a land full of of potentialities of promise. So the question basically that rises from all these discoveries, uh, these archaeological discoveries, is: Could the British effective dominion over the Middle East region make them heirs of to the promise of uh, of this ancient terrain? Um, and the sense of their imperial mission there, um, allowing them to give a new life to this cradle of civilization, to this cradle of humanity, and so to rescue it from its present state of ruin, of aridness, etc., and etc. So there is a contrast uh, in the na- in, in the discourse about archaeology, which is that you know archaeology has revealed the the, the grandeur the the glorious past of these these empires but these empires have fallen and now the region is in a sort of a state of uh, of ruin and of and of decay and the potential role of the british in the region is to bring the region back to its ancient glory uh but what is really interesting is then in in, in the very uh imperial idea of the imperial mission of, of the British is that the British in some ways would do better than these ancient empires, that they they would not fall, 
and that um the the domination would last uh unlike you know the Assyrian empire which had fallen etc and etc uh, sorry and this is what you mean by the mesopotamian moment and and its impact on the name of the region the middle east yes i, I what i show in the book is that again you know it, a lot of uh, of phenomenon and moments are connected so um when archaeologists uh, uh, you know on hers um the, the the riches of the ancient civilization and of the ancient empires um of the region it triggers a, a, a vast interest for 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 the region and at the same time um there there are a lot of projects around steam and the idea of opening the whole region of mesopotamia to steam navigation so uh, it's it's connected because through steam and steam navigation and the potentialities of steam, what steam has to offer, which, whether we talk about train or whether we talk about steamboats, for example, steamers, um, it it would it would participate to the imperial mission of um, bringing the bringing prosperity back to the Middle East, of restoring the ancient prosperity of the Hanging Garden of Babylon, uh, of of the, the the time of the Bible of the ancient empire, so there are lots of projects which I analyze in the book of of opening uh, the Shat el Arab and then the Tigris and the Euphrates to steam navigation that start in the 1830s um, and 1840s. They are funded either by British India or or by London, and there is a Mesopotamian moment. Ultimately. Um, it's the, the Suez Canal opened, so uh, the idea of uh, of having a steam route uh, in Iraq, so in, in Mesopotamia, become less important. However, these steam projects, together with the archaeological discoveries, have contributed to the cre to, to the creation of um, the concept of the Middle East and of the representation of the British Middle East, which is a region with a glorious past, a past of uh, prosperous empires, which have fallen, but a region that can be brought back to prosperity on the British tutelage and on the British uh, domination. Mm. And in the uh, 19th and 20th century, there was this growing competition uh, from, from the Ottoman Empire, from, from the French, what was its impact on the British imperialism towards in in the towards the end of nineteenth century and early twentieth century? Um, it's a great question. Um, and I guess my, my book is is organized around you know two two great moments. So first, there's the early nineteenth century with uh, the the French and Napoleon, and then there's the late nineteenth century. As you say, in the late nineteenth century, in what historians have called you know the the era of new imperialism, the British faced increasing competition in the Gulf region from various powers. The French, who sort of make a comeback. Uh, via um, a, a, a presence in Oman and various projects that they try to develop in Oman. You also have the Ottomans somehow uh, who are eager to reassert their authority on, on, on the north of the Gulf. You have the Russians, mostly uh, through Persia, who seem to want to, to gain some influence in the Gulf region. However, what I show uh, in the book is that... Um, the the British are worried essentially by 
one main actor or one main country is Germany or, or, or the Germans. Uh, Germany develops uh, from uh, in the late 19th century. There's a, a vast historiography on that. A lot of projects um, related to the Ottoman Empire and to asserting and forming, forging an alliance with the Ottoman Empire. And what worries the British is a project which is part of this Ottoman policy of the Kaiser Wilhelm, which is called the Baghdad Bahn. Um, so the, the railway that was uh, supposed to connect um, Istanbul to the Gulf, and which would be funded by uh, by German capital. I, I, I talk in the conditional because in the end, with the First World War, the, the, the project never came to a... Uh, into 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 existence, and the British are worried because they see the alliance between Germany and the Ottoman Empire happening with the visit of the Kaiser Wilhelm to Jerusalem, for example. But um, what what worries the British if that if the Baghdad Bahn is created, if this railway is created, it means the arrival of German capital in the Gulf region. So um, a, a a really um, strong competition uh, of uh, from from Germany, and that triggers um, what I call a new wave of imperialism because the British to sort of um, preventively you know guard the Gulf and guard their influence in the Gulf, sign a new series of treaties um, with the Gulf powers, so with Kuwait for example, in the very late nineteenth century. And they, these treaties are very much um, give birth to a system of protectorates. So in the end, again, um, in the the idea of a, of a competition, the fear of um, British interest uh, in the region being uh, damaged by uh, by German presence trigger a new a wave of imperialism. And we 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 had seen how the, the fear of the French had um in triggered British intervention in the government in some ways with Germany we see a very similar phenomenon mm. and there is another character you discuss in the book uh, George Cruzon who was he and what role did he play in shaping British policy in that time towards the end of 19th and to early 20th century so Curzon um yeah he, he is a very important character for my story and and the story of the creation of the British Gulf well Curzon was um you know it, it, an imperial um uh very important imperial actor uh who became the the viceroy of British India uh in 1899 and during um his time as the viceroy of India um, you know, various things were very close to his heart, but what was probably one of the things that were the closest to to his heart was the defense of British India and it and its dominion. So for him, you know, the Gulf was heavily important because it was the center of the vast uh, buffer system protecting British India on its western flank. So he's um, he's the man who um, actually, you know. Um, sets this policy of signing uh, new uh, new treaties with uh, with uh, the the powers of the Gulf to when when German competition uh, becomes um, you know a fact in the Gulf. But uh, what is really interesting is that um, in November 1904, at the end of his time in India, he travels to the Gulf um, with a huge party 
And uh, it's basically the second time um, that, um, you know, there is such a big expedition sent from British India to the Gulf. After um, the 1809 expedition uh, to Ras el Khaima, no one had never seen so many, you know, British uh, representative of, of British power in the Gulf. And Curzon travels to the Gulf in some ways to um, celebrate uh, the system which the British had built in the Gulf for a century. He truly celebrates it by holding a couple of meetings um, and, you know, official, um, uh, let's say, public um meetings um, where he meets with local authorities. He meets also with the representative of British power power in the Gulf uh, in some ways to mark uh, not only the signing of these alliances, but basically to, to mark a century of British imperialism in the Gulf. And the fact that after the signing of the alliances I've, 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 I've mentioned and the creation of British protectorates in the Gulf, it felt like uh, German influence would be kept uh, would be kept at bay. So he travels for a couple of months, uh, and it's really a tour of the Gulf, you know, where it appears um, to 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 what extent the Gulf and the network of alliances created is heavily heavily important to uh, the the system. The, the, of defense of, of British India. The Gulf is the center of the Middle East, so the center of the system protecting British India on its western flank. That what can be read from, you know, the way Curzon addresses, um, you know, his his local allies um, in the Gulf. Mm. Uh, be before ending this conversation, I always ask my uh, the interviewees this question, if they have any other books or projects that they're currently working on? Yeah, so I, I guess I work on two projects uh two projects now uh one is um you focus on the period um you know after the one I uh I I, I examine in the book so um I try to um I, I'm 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 currently working on um the early history of um uh, the oil search and uh, British oil search and exploration in the Gulf, so especially in Persia, uh, with the discovery of oil in eighteen o uh, in nineteen o eight uh, in Persia. So this is what I'm. Uh, uh, this is what I work on at, uh, at the moment. So a sort of like later story and the connection between imperialism and oil exploration and exploitation, and its environmental impacts on on local population, especially uh, on uh, some of the tribes of southwest Persia. And uh, I also work on the, let's say, the, the the period before the one I examine in the Gulf. So the the early uh, British and French endeavors in the Arabian Peninsula in the Gulf region, notably through the the trade in some commodities, so silk, but also coffee, which I've described. So I've a bit also like shifted my uh, the focus of my attention more to the Red Sea and the Arabian Sea and uh, uh, Mocha. So Mocha, is the, the, mm. which was the capital of uh, of the coffee trade in the 18th century, so that's that are my projects. Mm. Well, fascinating. I hope to be able to talk to you soon about your uh, your other works on New Books Network. I hope so too. But uh, thank you very much for mm. having me on the on the podcast. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you.